Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. From WHUPLP Hillsborough, this is She and Her. I'm Sandra Davidson. And I'm Anita Rao. Welcome back to She and Her. Tonight, we're bringing you a special episode about faith, a topic that's uniquely timely given the many recent xenophobic and racist comments about Islam that have made their way into public discourse. Of course, this includes a leading presidential candidate, Donald Trump, who recently put out a call to ban Muslims from entering the United States. So we've seen a lot of our friends and mentors and fellow millennials speak out in response to these comments. And throughout all of it, one thing remains really clear to me. There is no one experience of faith, religion, or spirituality. The beauty and the complexity lies in the details. So when we first started She and Her, as some of you might remember, we put a call out to listeners and we asked you to tell us, things that you wanted to hear us talk about that you felt like people weren't really talking about. And we heard from one of our friends who told us that she would like to hear more millennials talking about religion. Uh, She reflected that while we keep hearing that our generation is the least religious on record, that that statistic really glosses over our many varied experiences of faith and spirituality. So today, we take that challenge and we bring you the stories of women from all over the world who are in fact quite spiritual. They'll share their journeys with Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, and Hinduism. And at the very top, we're going to hear from our very own Anita Rao and her sister Priyanka, who grew up in a multicultural household with two very different faith backgrounds. Anita's talked a little bit about this in our original uh, inaugural episode. And Anita, would you tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about where your parents are from and their faith backgrounds? Yeah, so... uh, You met my mom in the very first episode. Uh, She is British. She grew up in a small coal mining town in the northeast of England in a very Catholic community. She has six siblings and a mother whose faith is very important to her. My dad, on the other hand, grew up in India in the south in a state called Andhra Pradesh, and he grew up practicing Hinduism. And he also had a mother who was a strong practitioner of her faith. All right, let's dive in. So... Let's just hop to it. Great. Um, Okay, so I just want to start by talking a bit about the faith background that we grew up in. So our mom was raised Catholic, uh, grew up in a small community in the northeast of England with a very practicing family. Our father is Hindu, and his Hindu faith is really important to him. So we grew up sort of in a combination of both of those worlds um how would you describe yeah how would you describe the faith environment that we grew up in so I think we 
grew up in a home that above everything else was always a very spiritual place. I feel like it was never a choose one or choose the other. Um, And it also wasn't just like, oh, pick which parts of Catholicism you like and pick which parts of Hinduism you like. You know, we went to Catholic Sunday school every week and went through like all of the different um, steps of Catholicism. We weren't officially baptized or officially confirmed into the Catholic Church, um, but we did like go through all the classes and learn about what those steps in the religion mean. And we also went to Bal Vihar, which is Hindu Sunday school every Sunday. So I feel like our environment and faith background at home was just one that taught you to be really accepting of different faiths because we had two different models just within our own house of five people. I agree. But I guess I remember my first time that I felt visibly different was when I was in Catholic Sunday school and then went to went through the process of first communion and like was like everyone else like took all of the same classes did everything but then on the day of first communion couldn't take first communion (laughs) because I hadn't been baptized and then sort of had to go up and walk with everyone else and everyone else was like getting their first like piece of bread and glass of wine and we had to like cross our arms and didn't get everything (laughs) I remember that too actually That was sort of the moment where I felt like in Hinduism, we were sort of fully accepted and could do everything. And I felt like I was fully Hindu, but then I didn't feel like I was fully Catholic, that there was a part of it that we couldn't be a part of. And I think that was an intentional choice our parents made. They didn't baptize us because baptizing us would sort of place us as like 100% Catholic. And I perceive Catholicism as more exclusive, so we couldn't be 100% Catholic and also be 100% Hindu, but we could be 100% Hindu and partially Catholic. When do you feel like were the most challenging uh, times for you of figuring out sort of what faith or I guess what religion you believed in or or how to make sense of what it meant to to be two religions at once? (laughs) That's that's a hard question. Um, I think the first time that I think that even came into question was when I was in high school. I had a really close group of friends in high school who each had a different faith background. And we often would sort of get into discussions about different elements of our different religions. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that we were all really involved in each other's lives and spent a lot of time with each other's families and participated in each other's community events. So that meant like going to different church activities, going to different temple activities, and all kind of being part of that with each other. And when we were younger, it never felt like I was the one straddling two different worlds. But then as we moved into high school, I felt each of them grew closer to their own one singular faith community. And I still felt sort of like torn and like I was straddling two different places. And I think that's when I first started to question, like, is this a real way to have a faith? Like, are you allowed to believe in two different things? Are you not? Um, Is there a right or wrong? And to be totally honest, I think those are questions that I still grapple with to this day. Um, I don't uh, go to church very often. I don't go to the temple very often. Part of that is just I have a busy life. And part of that is that I don't feel like comfort and solace from those physical places. Instead, I think that my like faith and religion has just taken much more of a bigger picture um, sort of personal 
spiritual journey. And in that journey, I feel like I've decided for myself that it's okay to believe in parts of both. It's okay to celebrate customs of both, and there's not really a right or wrong in that area. I don't know if you remember, but I feel like I had this one phase, and now I'm not even remembering where it was, like when it was, but I had, I think I had like an Indian like anklet on like my left ankle or something, and I like made this decision that the left side of my body was Indian and the right side was white. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Very bizarre. I don't know what I was thinking, but like I think that that like just sort of shows how I had this sense that like oh, yeah, I'm exactly half of one and I'm exactly half the other, and like it totally makes sense. And now, I feel like my perception of faith and spirituality is sort of some hodgepodge of both of those things, but much more about the feeling that I experience when I'm in a community of other people celebrating a certain you know way of living your life or a certain set of values less to do with identifying in particular with one religion or the other and I don't know I think a part of I mean we spend a lot of time in very intense like practicing of faith when we were younger and I feel like I kind of burnt out like we spent a lot of time yeah. at church and a lot of time in pujas and I feel like for me now like I can, I really appreciate the way of transmitting cultural knowledge that those things mm-hmm. allow. But I agree with you that for me, it's more about the conversations that happen outside that space that sort of stick with me. And I know I do, I really do want my kids to understand what those rituals mean and have a familiarity with them. But I don't know exactly how I want them to practice their own faith in their daily life because for me it is a very hodgepodge I also don't really attend church aside from holidays and only really do pujas when I'm home I don't know have you and Amit talked about how you want to raise your kids Uh, yeah I mean that adds a whole nother layer doesn't it because um, Amit grew up in a very Hindu family um, and I've been really amazed you know through the process of our wedding, which is a big ritual in both faith communities, they were really open um, to, you know, having a Hindu ceremony. And then we had part of the ceremony that was a Christian ceremony with some important readings and involved like mom's family. And that was something that was really important to me and something that I wanted to include. So I felt like we sort of started our life, our official life together as married people, inviting both faiths to be part of our future. But I think both of us just believe in having more of a spiritual life and a spiritual community. And I think that's what we'll try to sort of imbibe to our children in the future. Do you have any other reflections that you would like to share? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Only that I think it's really interesting that, and I don't know, actually, we'd have to ask Nikki Dush. I don't know what, Nikki Dush is our brother. I don't know what he thinks or how he feels about it, but that you and I have come out of this with what I think are very similar sort of ideas about religion and spirituality and faith, Um, which I think just sort of speaks to like the unified front and unified view that our parents presented. And like I said, I feel like it was very not biased. It was like, we're going to do all of this for one community. We're going to do all of this for another community. You're going to see, you know. Yeah. And the other thing I feel like is I just hear now a days in the news and in my daily life a lot of conflicts surrounding religion and faith, but I feel really thankful to have had the background that we have because then I don't feel 
so tied to one thing that I feel like I couldn't be accepting of something else. Yeah, I agree that I, yeah, that we sort of are, are positioned to, I don't like, I don't want to say, say see a bigger picture because it makes us seem like high and mighty, but. Right, which I'm not, no. Right, yeah, but just to, sort of understand how it can be both and it's confusing and it can be complicated, but like it's still interesting and it's still a part of our lives. Um, and it's still how we grew up. And it's yeah. still how we grew up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Priyanka, this has been a great chat. <laughs> <laughs> it's been lovely. Um, it's been lovely. Yeah, for real. Thank you for taking time. And that was our very own Anita Rao and her sister Priyanka talking a little bit about what it was like to grow up in a dual faith household. Anita, I really loved hearing you talk with your sister about your childhood experiences and also how that is informing the way you think about motherhood and how y'all will raise your kids. So what was it like to have that conversation? Have y'all talked about that before? We haven't really, not as directly as we had the opportunity opportunity to do um you know it's funny because I brought it up to her over Thanksgiving not knowing whether we were really going to do it and not really thinking about it that much until we both sat down and I dialed her number and I feel like it was the conversation that I would want to have also with my brother and I'm, I'm really curious to hear how my parents reflect on what we said um because as my sister said yeah we both came out of it with similar reflections but have never really shared those with each other yeah so what do we have next Next, we are going to hear an audio diary from Mariana Abdallah. Mariana grew up all around the world, but lives now in Brazil, which is her family's home country. Mariana discovered Buddhism when she was dealing with a severe bout of depression, and in many ways it turned her life around. She found its guiding principles to be comforting and grounding, especially in an age when so many of us are accustomed to constant change and demand instant gratification. Sometimes I do think that you know, religion and soccer teams in Brazil is kind of circumstantial. It's, you know, if your family cheers for a soccer team, then, you know, by osmosis, you're you're kind of cheering for that soccer team, too. And the same thing happens with religion. So I guess I was brought up Catholic, but I never I never really was, you know, going to the mass every Sunday. So it was something that I found. Buddhism was something that I found. When I was going through a really, really bad crisis of depression, and my therapist was a Buddhist here in Brazil, we had sessions that he would basically just talk about Buddhist philosophy without saying it was Buddhism. And everything that I heard just made so much sense to me. It was kind of like an Eureka feeling of, you know, this is it. This is what makes sense. I finally asked him, you know, the things you say to me make so much sense. And then he finally started you know, saying, actually, you know, the things that I've been telling you are very much influenced by Buddhist books that I have read and Buddhist people that I've met. So I think you should try to look up Buddhism. And so I did. And it was kind of an instantaneous belonging. You know, it's a religion without any guilt. They're not asking anything of you. So the premise of it is, you know, the Buddha went up and said, there's a set of things that I did and that helped me not to suffer. So I want to share that so that you cannot suffer like I did. 
And the thing is, if it works out for you, then great. But the Buddha himself said, if it's not working out for you, then just don't do it. You know, so it's it's a religion that I don't even know if I want to call it a religion. It's kind of, it's a set of rules to to, to try to help people not to suffer. And I love the fact that it kind of goes deep into what is our nature. And really what Buddhism is saying is our nature is peaceful. Our nature is good in that sense. We're not really made to to fight. And the only reason we fight is because we suffer. I mean, and I strongly believe that everything that happens in the world in terms of conflict and every conflict in our personal level as well just happens because we're trying really hard not to suffer and we're trying every way possible not to suffer and it's whatever instrument, whatever means comes to us to to attain that, we think, you know, well, let's try this. And people do all kinds of things that hurt each other and hurt themselves, but in the end they're just trying not to suffer. And um, I don't know, I think it's as basic as that. And I I meditate while I eat. (laughs) I, it's really hard for me to meditate, especially with depression and anxiety, you know, but, but then again, Buddhism is not about blaming yourself. It's not about guilt. So, you know, there's no rush. There's no rush in things. And I think us millennials, we're really used to getting things done quickly. And we have no patience in terms of learning. We want things to be ready now. We want to learn everything now. We want to be able to speak seven languages now. And a lot of what the Buddhist practice is, is just, you're not going to learn everything now. And it's it, it kind of puts us in place, and it's like, you're much bigger than you think you are. And in order to really acknowledge that, you have to be patient. And you have to be humble enough to say, this is not right now. Mariana Abdal is sharing her journey to Buddhism. She sent us that audio diary from Brazil. So I was thinking a lot about what she was saying, this pressure as a millennial to go, 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 to do, 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 this instant gratification. And I totally relate to it. And I think a lot of other people I know do as well. And I am really compelled by this idea that Buddhism asks her to be present and to confront her suffering. And when you're going, 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 and you're doing so much, you don't really have time to look at those things in, in your life. Yeah, and the, the, there's one part of the interview where she describes how she has to sit, and just trying to sit and meditate for five seconds can be excruciatingly painful. And I totally relate to that feeling of suddenly when everything stops and when you try to take a moment beyond the go, 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 uh, you realize sort of all the pressures that are compounding and, and making everything feel so crazy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, so a lot of our guests reflected on societal pressures in some form or another. Um, and what's so interesting is that our next guest um, had a really similar experience where her faith really helped her sort of confront and come to terms with how she wanted to manage these pressures in her life. Uh, but hers is a story about Christianity. For Allie Van Eyten, faith transformed the way that she understands how the pressure to do it all and do it all right impacts women in particular. Uh, Sandra, tell us more about uh, Allie and what's coming up next. Yeah, so this is a friend of mine from college, and she currently lives in Missouri Valley, which, don't be tricked by the name, is actually in western Iowa. And she lives there with her husband and three children. And I met Allie when I was a freshman in college, and she was working for Campus Outreach, which is an evangelical group that works on college campuses to teach students there about Christianity. Allie started working there after she graduated from college, and in order to do so, she had to raise her entire salary by herself, which to me is a real testament to her faith and how convicted she is. Um, but her faith hasn't always been that way. So she grew up in Naperville, which is a suburb of Chicago, and a home that wasn't particularly religious. They went to church and they celebrated Christian holidays, but they didn't really talk about religion much at home. And even when she went to church in high school and was with a youth group, so much of what she was taught about God and the Bible is was around behavior. So don't lie, don't drink, don't have sex. And for her, following the rules never really seemed to bring her closer in a relationship with God. And so it wasn't until she went to college where she really started understanding what a relationship with God could look like. And this first clip is her telling us a little bit about that. Was there a certain point where it actually felt like a personal choice, uh, something that you wanted to identify yourself with versus a set of rules that were sort of put upon you? Yeah, well, so I went to college in um, Charleston, South Carolina, and I never spent really any time in the South at all. So coming from a very nominal Catholic community and moving to the Bible Belt was so different. It was the first time I ever really heard people say that they had like a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But I actually joined a sorority, which was not a Christian experience at all. But there happened to be a few girls, and they had this relationship with God. And I just was really attracted to how they lived their life. And they just seemed like really authentic people. And so through my friendships with them, I really started learning, oh, this is what maybe I was looking for. Maybe this is what it really means to follow God. Can you give us an example of how your life changed? The culture I grew up in outside Chicago was a pretty competitive, pretty competitive high school. Um, I was in a a pretty um, intense group of girlfriends in high school. I just had always felt this push that I had to be perfect. I had to do everything perfect. I had to be the perfect student. I had to be the perfect friend. I had to look perfect. I had to act perfect. Just kind of, you know, our culture is always telling women, you have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. You have to look this way. You have to be smart. You have to be good at sports, whatever it is for you. I just felt all this pressure all the time. And I think that was the first time in my life where I felt like, I don't have to be perfect anymore. I can just be me, and I'm accepted by God. So that's Allie Van Eyten, a Christian who lives in western Iowa. And this is a really good time to mention that Allie refers to herself as an ex-hoarder. 
So she thinks that this idea of being the perfect woman fits right into pressures of a consumer society. And although her relationship with God was transformed while she was in college, it wasn't until after marriage that she after she got married that she really started confronting some of the behaviors that this pressure to be perfect were still shaping her life, how they were still shaping her life. So um, in 2013, she decided to go on a spending fast to kind of beat this idea of striving for perfection. And this is her talking about that. So for a whole year, I decided I wasn't going to spend any money on clothes, any money on services. And so pretty much the only thing I could buy for that year was, you know, food for our families. We needed it. And if I ran out of something. And so I did that for a whole year. And blogged about it a little bit for some accountability and it was really fun and it was really hard because one thing I realized was a lot of that spending was kind of a coping mechanism whenever life got hard it was just such an easy crutch to go and just kind of mindlessly buy something for that boost you know when you feel kind of good after you make a purchase and um I, just I know realized well. <laughs> how much I was doing that <laughs> yeah exactly does it have any relationship to your faith? Do you see those two things as connected? Oh, yeah. I mean, even bigger than, you know, kind of feeling like, okay, I've totally bought into this, like, consumer mindset of our culture was looking at my faith and seeing, okay, so this is what Jesus says, and this is the way he lived his life and the things he talked about in the Bible, and mine is so separate from that. Like, it's just such a disconnect. And so I just kind of started to say, if I'm going to say I believe this, then I can't just ignore half of his teachings, right? And Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. So it's a big deal to him. I mean, he says over and over again, where your money is, your heart is. And so in kind of reflecting on that, I realized, man, my heart is just all about myself and my own selfish desires. And sometimes that's okay. Like, I don't think it's wrong to buy, you know, inexpensive hair shoes every now and then. But I think it's really easy to ignore the fact that, okay, our world is really broken. There's all these needs everywhere. If I'm spending all my money on myself and my own family, am I really honoring God by not addressing, you know, all this brokenness around me? And I think a lot of people just ignore it because it's easier and it's easy to numb out, you know, after you see something hard on TV or you read an article that's heartbreaking, you know, then all of a sudden, oh, my dinner's ready and oh, now we got to do this and go here and you just kind of forget and get numb and numb and numb. And I just knew that that's not how Jesus lived, that he was always engaging with the needs of people around him. And I wanted to give more room for that in my life. Christian beliefs inform every aspect of her life and even helped her curb a shopping addiction. So Sandra, do you think that you could do a spending fast? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't say that when I was following along with Allie's blog, I didn't really think about what that would look like for my life. Um, I just think it was really powerful to hear how she confronted 
this behavior that she had in her life and really decided that it was distracting her from not only what was really important to her and her family and another thing that she talks about which we pulled from the interview is that she mentioned how you know again women in our society are pressured and pressured to be perfect and if her daughter who she's raising now saw her mom still succumbing to these pressures to buy the nicest things to wear the nicest clothes to have the nicest looking house then what kind of model was she going to provide for her daughter so really powerful stuff and you know I don't even practice a religion now and I had a really great relationship with Allie when I was in college where we would talk about faith and she and I don't agree on everything but hearing her voice reminds me of how great it is to be a part of a community that's asking these broader questions about suffering in the world about these problems in human nature and also what can we do to focus our energy and our love and our compassion on things beyond ourself. Totally. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that I was reflecting with when I talked with Priyanka as well of that missing that sense of constant community and knowing that there's a place that you can go where people are going to be talking about these issues and you're sort of all evolving together. Um, Yeah. It's something I've been thinking about a lot listening to all of these pieces together yeah what does justice look like and what in our secular world asks us to think about justice and what does it mean to be a part of a of a faith in a community that is constantly looking at this notion of justice exactly so anita what do we have for the last part of our show so the last part of our show, um, we have an interview that we did with Suad Bushnak. And Suad is a Canadian composer of Palestinian, Syrian, and Bosnian roots. She grew up in Amman, Jordan, in a Muslim family, um, but religion actually was not a big part of her upbringing. Her parents were spiritual, and she describes both of them as people who acknowledged the presence of God, of people who had relationships with God. Uh, but neither of them were strict practitioners of Islam. Her father didn't observe Ramadan, her mother and many women in her extended family didn't wear the hijab, the head covering. Um, So Suad's journey to Islam was born in large part from the death of her mother. Suad was in her mid-20s when her mother passed away suddenly from cancer, and it was in that moment that she felt pulled strongly to connect with something bigger than herself. I was very interested in religion ever since I was about maybe 12 years old or something. Um, I've always had that strong sense of right or wrong and that strong sense that you know there is a god and we should do what god commanded so i've always had that in me ever since i was a kid even though i i grew up in a family that wasn't that strict when it came to things like that you know what i mean what do you think inspired that and when you say 12 is there something a memory that you have where you were particularly drawn to religion it it really is innate and uh it's funny i don't really believe in you know your birth signs and all that stuff but I'm a Pisces and every book that I read that has to do with what Pisces are like it always says that they have a very strong like almost zealous sense of religion and it's funny um but I would say I don't know maybe growing up in in a country where these things were being practiced and meeting people who practiced who I really liked so like meeting family members who I've really felt comfortable around and they were also practicing Muslims maybe that's kind of you connected with that. Yes. And, yeah. Whenever I'd go visit them, I just feel this sense of peace, you know, being around them. And they never, like, tried to preach or anything. 
and they accepted me the way I am. I mean, my mom's uncle in Syria, uh, he used to go and pray every single prayer of the five prayers in the mosque. And he was a grandfather, you know. Every single prayer, he'd walk out, drive, take the car to the mosque, pray, and come back. And yet, whenever he saw me, and I wasn't wearing my head covering back then, and, you know, and I was studying music, and whenever he'd see me, he would be like, when an animal is elevated, an animal becomes a human being. And when the human being is elevated, that human being becomes a musician. He'd say that every time he sees me, you know? Wow. So, and he was a very um, pious and practicing man. So it's people like that who are very, you could tell like there was this light in their face, but who never preached. These are the ones who influenced me, I, hmm. I would say, the most. So you weren't wearing the headscarf before your mother passed away. My mother didn't wear the headscarf and most of my family members don't wear it. But for me, it was more um, out of impulse, you know? I, it was more out of shock. It was a day before my mom passed away. It was actually in the hospital room where she was on her deathbed. I remember walking into the bathroom in her room and just like putting a scarf on my head and saying, this is how I want to look like. It wasn't because of the scarf itself. It was more of a, of a way to remind myself to care less about myself and more about others and the well-being of others so it's not a conscious decision that took me months to to take it was a very impulsive decision I mean did you know when you put it on that you wanted to do that indefinitely yes I knew back then that I'm gonna wear it for life hmm. and um, I've been wearing it now for about I mean um, well almost nine years in January and yeah you go through phases I mean Sometimes you question it. A lot of Muslims don't like the headscarf, and they have their reasons. And I'm talking about family members of mine who really don't like it. And I've been, they've been trying to convince, convince me to not to wear it. So um, it's very funny when someone thinks that someone has, you know, that I've been forced to wear it. Now, this is not to say that there are women who are not forced to cover up. I mean, you can go to the Middle East and in some areas, women cover up and they don't even know why they're doing it you know I mean they do it because someone told them since they were not even adolescents yet they just told them this is what you wear and they have no clue why they do it and some of them aren't even practicing but they just wear it as a dress code you know so um well so how do you then reconcile this sort of broader cultural or religious narrative that part of it is to protect women from the male gaze with your own sort of political views of what I gather from our other conversations of gender equality and choice. Um, if, if women have the right to choose, but it's within a larger system where wearing the hijab can sometimes mean something that would be oppressive, how do you yeah. reconcile those things? And how would you encourage other people to, to think about how those things can be reconciled? I mean, your, your question makes a lot of sense because some people will tell me, well, even though a man is not forcing you to do that, you believe that God is forcing you to do that, right? So th some, some people would give you that argument. That, okay, you're not oppressed by a man, but why would God ask you, the woman, to cover up and not ask the man? Now, what they don't know is that the man is asked to cover up, but in different ways because a man's physique is different, you mm. know? Um, it's, it's a very philosophical question, and I honestly, like... Each woman who's wearing it has different circumstances, a, a different family, a different circle of friends, and all of these factors uh, kind of dictate mm. that experience of wearing it. 
um, and our experiences as women who choose to cover are very different. Mm. You, you have the women who have the full support of their husbands or their dads or their mothers, and then you have women on the very other end of the mm -hmm. spectrum. So it's a very diverse, um, you know. Spectrum. Spectrum, yeah. yeah. I mean, I have a lot of Muslim friends who used to wear it and who are taking it off, like each month one of my friends takes it off wow. for, the, for reasons like that. And it's something that I also question sometimes. But I'm not wearing it because I need to cover up from someone. The, the reason I started to wear it was more um, to remind myself to, to keep practicing because I believe in the importance of my practice because it makes me feel better and it brings, a, it, it, it brings, it's a source of comfort in my life. My practice is a source of comfort in my life. And that, for me, covering my hair is just, it's not the, it's a means to an end, you know, it's not the, it's, it's sure. not the end itself. Um, in Islam, we have m tons of things that we need to do, and this is just one of them mm. yes. for those who believe that they need to do it. It's not the essence of religion. I mean, there are way more important things than, than this, you know, um, like being a good person, like helping the poor, like you cannot sleep while knowing that your neighbor is hungry. Like there's a lot, of, uh, there's a lot more to Islam than, mm. than what you wear, you know what I mean? Absolutely. It's, it's a lifestyle. And there are many women who are fully practicing Muslim women who are better than me, a hundred times better than me, who don't cover their hair. So it's, it's just one of those options that you get. Yeah, I think what you bring up is that there are these, there are religious symbols that become very politicized. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between a politicized symbol and a personal choice that signifies something important in your own individual journey with your faith or with your family. Exactly. But that's what's what kind of worries me nowadays is that I know what this is for me. My friends know what this is for me. But once I'm on the street, if I'm going to Kroger or Walmart or whatever, and a person is next to me, they might very well think that I'm I'm wearing it for political reasons. You know what I mean? And that's what kind of scares me in light of the current circumstances. Mm. I mean, we all know about the three students who got killed in Chapel Hill. They were friends of my friends, by the way. I mean... We were supposed, my husband and I were supposed to get introduced to them through a common friend, and it never happened. So I feel that we're living at a time where it's, it's becoming very tricky, you know, mm. to, to put yourself out there as someone who belongs to a religion who not everyone likes because of the madness that's happening in, in its name. Mm -hmm. So it's risky. I feel that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, if you're a real Muslim, then you believe that you will not be able to stop any harm from happening because whatever happens is decreed from God and that he's the ultimate protector. So that's what keeps me going for now. Suad Bushnak, a Jordanian-born composer who now lives and works in Raleigh. She composes music for films and orchestra, and you actually just heard a brief sample of some of her work at the end of her interview right there. She's so talented and so articulate. It was just a really compelling conversation. So what I'm sitting here wondering now is, after hearing all of these different perspectives and you know, even re-listening to the conversation that you had with your sister, what what 
what are you thinking about? What do you think about faith and spirituality as it relates to people our age? I think that one thing that came through in all of these is, in my mind, I think that a lot of our friends have sort of integrated their religion and spirituality and faith into their life in a way that's a little less obvious and a little less tangible than maybe our parents or at least my parents who would physically go to a church or physically go to a place where they would gather with other people. And I feel like in a lot of these interviews, it was sort of something that was a personal choice and came by chance and therefore gave everyone sort of the ability to integrate it into their life in a way that was very specific and personal to them. Um, And I don't know whether that's, I mean, that seems to be unique to uh, our generation's experience, at least from what I can tell. How about you? Yeah. I mean, I think it keeps reminding me how, and I say this as a, a obnoxiously busy person, a person who at this point in my life feels really overwhelmed sometimes by how much I have to get done and it never all gets done, but it really does make me think about looking beyond the New York Times op-ed for a reminder of, you know, how to think about something and how to approach these issues that we see happening on television and even injustices happening in our happening in our own communities how to think about those beyond the op-ed basically and what is it like to be a part of a community that's constantly having those conversations and I actually think that I have those conversations a lot with my friends I mean you and I have them on this program every week or we try to but you know what compels people to act out on those values and beyond those conversations with the structure of something like a church or something like if you're looking at a, a, a single text that compels you or has rules or ideas about what you are to do once you know that people are suffering, you know, that is, I think that really does and can compel people to act. And I can't say that I'm going to start going back to church by any means, but it really does make me think about ways to incorporate this notion of action um, and this notion of, of being a decent person, being a better person, being more involved in the community, how to bring that to bear in my own life. Yeah. And I feel like it also, this was a neat opportunity for us to be able to talk directly about religion and faith and ask people directly about that. Because yes. it seems like it's sort of something we're supposed to act like doesn't exist or we're, we're nervous. You know, there's so much sort of trauma and hatred around the way that people are experiencing their religion publicly right now so it's nice here to sort of bring that to the forefront and have that be something we could all talk really openly about yeah absolutely absolutely especially i mean when you know yes we are reminded a lot that we are the least religious generation there is but you know what is that what does that feel like to people who are very religious and are very spiritual so i hope that they enjoyed being able to share their stories too we Me certainly too. we certainly appreciated their time and their their stories yeah we're really thankful um for all of our contributors this week um from near and far and we're rounding out the episode tonight. Yes. Uh, you all know where you can find us every Thursday from 6 to 7 on 104.7 WHUP Hillsboro. If you're out of range, you can stream us live on whupfm.org. Or you can find us how you're listening to us now on our podcast. We're on iTunes and SoundCloud. 
Um, and we encourage you to subscribe and rate the show if you like it. Where can you? And we also have the playlist of each of our yes. episodes. Yes. So you can find us on Spotify at She Plus Her. And every single week, we ask our guests who come on to submit uh, ideas about based around the theme of the program. So in this particular week, um, we were talking about religion, but we asked our guests just to just to give us a sense of what they're currently listening to now. Um, And again, you can find that on Spotify at she plus her. So she and her is a broadcast um, that we make every week from the studios of WHUP in downtown Hillsboro. Our theme music is composed by Cameron Laws and Sam Gerwick. And Sandra and I write and produce the show each week. Thank you so much for listening. And we will catch y'all again next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.